Uh, before we get started, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, Father, and God, uh, God in heaven, we uh, confess that we are um, pretty bullheaded sometimes, Lord. Uh, we get really hot and, and really mad and really um, focused on opinions. And, and Lord, we love to debate and argue um, and tell other people that they're stupid. Um, Father, help us uh, in this study today to realize that, uh, that everything's just a little more complex than we think. Um, that your will is bigger than we can fit into our little boxes. Um, Presence in your name. Amen. So first things first, we need to define our terms, ask a simple question, what is God's sovereign will? Not is, what are the things that are God's sovereign will? We've already covered that topic. Go back and listen to the last few weeks. But what is the definition of God's sovereignty? What is the definition of God's sovereignty? God's sovereignty, sometimes called God's providence, can be defined as follows. God, before he created time and space, this is eternity, past. <clears throat> before he created time and space, decreed his plan and his will for all of history. In this plan, God is continually, right now, involved with all created things in such a way that he won keeps all of creation continually in existence by the force of his will. He keeps everything in existence. Two, he cooperates with creative things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. That's real fancy speech for God makes everything do everything. Three, directs all created things to fulfill his purposes. So everything is moving to his purposes. 1 Samuel 2, 6 through 8. <clears throat> the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Uh, in all of creation, all that exists, God does what he wants. God is in control. He set the pillars of the earth. And now we have to ask, the next obvious question is, why is God sovereign? <clears throat> Very simply, God is sovereign because he is the creator. He willed everything into existence. He willed existence. He created everything. Time, space, thought, reason. All life and property ultimately belong to God. All majesty, glory, power, honor, everything is God's because he created all things. It's simple as that. He is the first cause of all things. Thus he is free to do as he wills with his, all of his creation. Romans nine eighteen through 20. So then, he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? God created all of this. He has the right to do whatever he wants. That is why he is sovereign. 
And next we should ask, if God is in control, because he created all, what exactly is he in control of? Let's break it down a little bit. So God is sovereign and in control over creation, all of creation. We've already said this a couple times. But that's the weather, that's gravity, that's the spin of the earth, that's all those twinkling stars that are giant balls of burning gas. God's in control of all that stuff. He's in control of every animal, every blade of grass, every hair in your head, every molecule. God is sovereign over all of those things. He is sovereign over history. Every event, every happening, for all of time, God has had complete control over. Nothing gets out of God's hands. Um, I always think of Jesus on the cross as my example of this. Jesus, the Son of God, who is God himself, being beaten, tortured, dragged through the mud, spit on, cursed at. He was in complete control the entire time. Up on the cross, being nailed to the cross. God was in complete control. The misconception that Jesus was a poor, innocent man who was, you know, beaten and, and, and... Well, yeah, okay, those things are technically true, but this was God, fully powerful God, who could have willed those Romans out of existence if he wanted to. We're talking about God, who is in control of every event. He is, he is sovereign over our lives. Every aspect, every event in our lives, God was sovereign over. And we'll get into a little more detail there. Our actions, this one we have a little bit of a hard time with. But the Bible says that Men make plans in their minds, and then God directs their feet. <clears throat> he directs us and he leads us, uh, even willing our actions. Now, it's best to note right now that God's sovereign will is tied directly, um, and essentially so, into all of his other attributes. So let's just get this out of the way. God is wise and all-knowing, which means that his will can be trusted to be the wisest course. Because he is good, he is wise. God is infinitely powerful, so we can know that his sovereign will will ultimately happen. Because he's all powerful. Nothing's more powerful than God. God has abounding love for us, so we can rest in the fact that whatever happens, our Father in heaven is looking out for us. So, when considering God's sovereignty, his great power, which is kind of scary sometimes, just remember his other attributes, because they're all linked together. Now, I've stated all these things. Um, that God is, in fact, actively in control, that he deserves to be in control, and that he, his sovereign will is a good thing. And now I want to dig into some text. We're going to be looking at Romans 8, 28 through 30, and we're going to be there for a while. Uh, I'm reading out of the NASB because I prefer the translation. We can talk later if you have an issue with that. Uh, it's going to be up here on the screen, but go ahead and turn your Bibles with me. I'll wait for the screen before I read it. All right, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. In my humble opinion, these verses are some of the most essential key to understanding God's sovereignty in our personal lives, to us personally. 
I, I think that they succinctly state and very clearly state God's direct action in my salvation and in, and in my sanctification. This is God acting. None of this is us acting. None of it is. It's God acting. Kind of, can you go back to 28? Is that we're going to start looking at it with verse 28. The obvious place, the beginning. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we know. That's the first statement. And we know. And I want to take a moment to focus on it. Because what Paul is stating is not that, uh, that we believe. It's not that we speculate. The word in Greek means literally to see or behold something and thus know it to be obviously true. This is, I know the sky is blue because I've seen it. We can debate philosophy later and everything, but a reasoning human being sees the sky is blue and thus knows it's blue. That's the kind of knowledge Paul is talking about here. Whatever he's about to tell us, we should know these things as obvious, obvious truths. And he says, the thing that we should know is that God causes all things to work together for good. Now, it's probably notable here that it does not say that God causes all things in your life and those things are good. It says that God causes all the things that happen to you in your life to work together for good. There's a slight difference. Now, that in no way means that God is somehow not in control. I'd say on the contrary, for him to be maneuvering everything in your life for an end result of good means that he is in absolute control over everything, every aspect. <clears throat> now, I think what is significant here is that not everything in your life is what God desires for you. And a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, God's decretive will, what he makes happen, versus his preceptive will, what he commands, but we are free to disobey. But not everything in your life is what he desires for you. We can disobey him. Others can do us harm. Even the environment we live in can destroy us. There are things that I believe God does not desire for you. But God takes all those things and somehow he works them together for good. Now we need to take a moment and deal with that good part. Good. Because if God causes all things to work together for good, why do so many bad things happen? Because personally, myself, I can think of dozens of bad things that happen in my life, and I'm sure every one of you here can agree. Bad things happen all the time. Now the point here is that God does not promise in any way that he will work all things out for our comfort. He does not say, I will cause all things in your life to be such that you will be happy with all of them. Absolutely not. He says they will work out to your good. Now, when a child wants a cookie, and his parent says no, but that cookie will make him happy. So he takes the cookie anyway, and he's happy for that split second until he gets whopped, right? Now, kid doesn't like being disciplined. It doesn't make the kid happy, but it is good for that child to be disciplined. It is good. I'm sure we all know those people. We, ha we were in high school, middle school with those people who, oh, my parents never spanked me. And they always tend to be the little brats. There's a reason for that. Because, honestly, spare the rod, spoil the child. If you do not discipline your child at all, in no way, 
And I'm saying there's different kinds of discipline. I'm not saying you have to spank your every child. I get it. There's different ways. What I'm saying is that if you do not discipline your child at all, your kid is going to be a brat. So you did your kid no favors by letting that kid be happy. But what's good for the child is discipline. What God is promising here is that whatever happens in our life, he will work it out for our good, for our growth, for our sanctification. But what if your life is just falling apart? Uh, And I've met people like this, Christians. Lives are just falling apart. Uh, My sister had a good friend several years ago, Christian uh, in college, whose family abandoned her, and then the family that basically adopted her just fell apart. Um, a few of them died in a car accident, another one committed suicide, another one OD'd on drugs. It was just ridiculous. Like in a few months, life was falling apart. And she had issues with with depression. Um, And I remember at the time thinking, what do you even say to this person? But God promises that all things will work together for our good. So how can all of these things work out? Now, I I read a story uh, once about a preacher who was visiting an elderly woman from his congregation. Um, now she had, she had the, the canvas stretched over the frame and she was working on a tapestry of sorts. Now the preacher, and this is him telling the story, was admittedly completely ignorant about how to stitch a tapestry. He had no idea what he was looking at. But he couldn't help but notice how ugly it was because it was just strings hanging off and random blobs of color. He couldn't even make out a pattern or a shape or anything. It's just ugly. Uh, and he honestly started wondering if, if the old woman from his congregation was becoming senile. So, you know, a few hours go by, they're talking, and he's watching, and he's not getting it. And then finally he stands to leave. Um, and then she offers it to him. Oh, no, I'm making this for you. And he's, oh, great. And then she turns it over, and he realizes, ah, oh, I'm an idiot. I was looking at the wrong side. Because all those ugly things on the back, all those strings and bobs of colors, all the nasty stuff, you turn it over and it turns out it's this beautiful landscape. He's looking at it from the wrong perspective. And that's our problem. We see our lives from, from the bottom. We're looking at it from down here on earth. And we see all the nasty stuff hanging off and all the ugly blobs and nothing's working together. But from God's perspective, and the perspective we're going to see, I believe when we're in God's presence, when we look back at our lives, God's perspective is he's weaving all these things together and he's making a beautiful picture. And he's ensuring your salvation. He's ensuring your sanctification. And he's working all these things out for your good, for your growth, for your becoming more conformed to Christ. Now we do need to note that Paul does not say that God will cause all things to work together for the good of everyone. He says that God promises this for those who love God. Now this alone would have me worried because, man, daily I don't love God. Daily. And we know love is action, right? Not feeling. It's action. It's commitment. Daily I break those commitments to God. But praise God, he goes on to clarify that those who love God are defined as those who God called according to his own purpose. So here we find, again, God's providence, his sovereign will over my life. He calls those who will receive this promise. Let's move on to uh, 
8.29. Paul continues to clarify this group. Those who God calls to receive this promise. They are also those whom he foreknew, who are those who he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And those people, all that happened is so that Christ could be the firstborn among a family, among brethren. So those who God called, he foreknew. Now this concept of foreknew is a little bit more complex. We could get into the Greek and the, there's some Hebrew variants I don't understand. But regardless, it's evidently not that simple. It's not just he knew about it ahead of time. Although obviously he did. Uh, he knew about you before you were born, before he created the earth, he knew about you. But it's a little more complex than that. Evidently, this means that he would know who you would be. This means that he planned you and that he loved you even. There's a variant that includes the idea of loving beforehand. So he loved you before you were even, before the universe was created is what this is saying. He loved you and he knew you and he decided to bring you into being. God personally decided to bring you into existence. God made the decision. But not just that, it says that those whom he foreknew, who he foreloved, is what commentators say, he predestined to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now being conformed to the image of Christ is referring to our sanctification. Now sanctification is a big fancy word that means we are progressively growing, maturing, becoming more holy, becoming more Christ-like, uh, for the purpose of eventually being made sanctified by God in our glorification. So this is our progressive throughout our life, becoming more mature, growing, going up. <clears throat> now what Paul is saying is that God predestined you to sanctification. Consider that for a moment. God decided beforehand and planned your sanctification. He decided and willed that you would be conformed, that you would be changed into a better person, that you would eventually become exactly what he intended you to be. Now this is an important point in our topic today because sanctification deals directly with our actions and with our thoughts. Being conformed to Christ, being sanctified, requires that your actions and your choices be more like what Christ's actions and choices would be. So, saying that God is the one who decided, who predestined that you would be sanctified is the same as saying that God is sovereign over your actions. Furthermore, your thoughts and your heart must be conformed to be sanctified. It is not just actions. Because Scripture tells us that God cares deeply about our intentions, about our purposes. To be sanctified, your heart and your thoughts and your intentions must be conformed to Christ. So God, before time began, chose that your mind and your heart would be changed and conformed to what it's supposed to be. Christ-like. This means that he is sovereign over your deepest feelings and your thoughts and your intentions. And Paul says that the purpose of all of that, the purpose of that predestination to conforming to Christ is so that we can be siblings to Christ. 
Now, God, the creator of the universe, who we sin and blaspheme against daily, and who loved us and wanted us before before salvation, I mean, we were we were we were enemies. I know we don't we don't really get this in the in these days, right? Because we're not going out to battles. But consider David as my example. He had people who were out to kill him, who hated him, who would spit on him if they had the chance. So that's that's enemy. So while we were yet enemies of God. He chose you to be his child. He adopted you to be, your ch- to be his child. He chose you for adoption. Now, we have a few people in the church who have done adoption, um, and I'm sure that when you go to meet the child, the child isn't spitting on you and blaspheming your name and hitting you. And do, you know, we were enemies of God. And he chose you for adoption as a child. Now, we have this habit, I believe, when we think of God our Father, when we say we're, we're the true children of God, when we thank God, Father in Heaven, all those things, I think that they've kind of become numb. The words have lost meaning. We say it a lot. And I think we almost think of it as like a mystical, vague... It lost, it's lost meaning a lot of times. Scripture says, call him Abba Father. That's Daddy. Call him Daddy. <clears throat> so God, before time began, chose that, that you would be his child. And Paul says next, that to make this happen, he called you in such a way that you... You couldn't say no. Verse 30, if you would please. And these whom he predestined to be conformed, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now we should take a moment and say, it says he called and then he justified. And we'll get to all the meanings in a second. And then glorified and all those good things. That means that when he calls you, you don't get to say no. It doesn't say he called and those who answered. No, it says he called and then he justified them and glorified them. Those people who God predestined, uh, who who have God's promise that all things are going to work together for the good, um, those whom he desires to be his children, he calls forth from the world. And like I said, this is not an action of ours. This is an action of God's. This is God's sovereign will for your life. Now, who among us believe that we can in any way stand against God's direct will for you, his decree for you? You can't. When God has a decretive will, what he makes happen, you cannot stand against it. We're talking about God here. You can't resist it. And God is the one taking action. He's compelling us to come to him. It's not as though we are slaves. It's as his children, because he loves us. Because honestly, I'm not sure that we would go to him without him making us go to him. Furthermore, it says that he has justified these children that he has called. Uh, Justification is a legal term. 
Uh, it means to make someone just or innocent. It means that before a judge and jury, you were decided not guilty, but it is not just a, a matter of neutrality where you were, uh, you were the criminal and now you're not. It's actually, it's actually a gain. It's saying that before judge and jury, they say, not only are you not guilty, but you are worthy of praise because you're such a good citizen. Worthy of, of honor for your righteousness. And our salvation, this means that immediately upon accepting the, the free gift, the salvation, Jesus Christ's sacrifice, God considers our sins as forgiven. He equates Christ's righteousness to us and declares us to be completely righteous in the sight of God. He sees Christ's righteousness as if it is our righteousness. This is true justification. God in his sovereign will, before you were born, before the universe was created, determined the moment that you would become justified before God. And next, referring back to our being conformed to the image of Christ, Paul ends his statement by saying God has glorified us. Now, glorification is the promise that there is an end, that there is an end result, that God has everything planned out. Glorification means that when you are risen, Christ is going to come back, we're all going to rise, and we're going to be perfected. We're going to be Christ-like in perfection. We won't be deity, but we will be Christ-like. That's what glorification means. Now, there is some interesting things here. Um, I won't get into the details, but essentially, Paul uses a past tense verb as an idiom. That means that he says he also glorified past tense, and what he meant, what he means is, it is so assured in the future that we can speak it as if it has already happened. If you want the details, we can talk later. There's lots of examples of it in Scripture. This is God telling us that He has it all planned out. He has our destiny decided for us. Now next, we do need to ask the obvious question. Um, if God is in control of our actions and our destiny, our destiny am I still responsible for my actions? Uh, short answer is yes. The Bible holds us fully responsible for all of our actions. Uh, it tells us over and over and over again that we can choose to live our lives in specific ways. Uh, a few examples. Romans 10:13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call. Matthew 23:37. This is Christ speaking. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Both these verses make it very clear that we have a choice to make. God is calling out to us, and we have a choice to make. It's our personal choice. We all know John 3.16, right? Everyone knows that by heart. Does anyone know John 3.18 by heart? I'll read it. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. All sins of all mankind for all eternity were paid for by the infinite worth of Christ's death, but it will not be applied to you personally unless you make the choice to accept it, is what this is saying, that you have a personal choice to make. 
Now, I want to take a moment and just point out the fact that I am completely avoiding the topic of evil in this sermon. I'm talking about forgiveness of sins. Now is about the right time. Uh, anytime God's providence is discussed, it always comes up. If God is in complete control, why does evil exist? Why is there sin? I am avoiding this on purpose, so I just want to make sure everyone's aware we're not dealing with this today. The answer is no. God did not create evil. God did not create sin. The Bible's clear. We're not going to get into the philosophical debates there. Uh, honestly, it's a bit of a waste of our time today, because today we're talking about God's sovereign will for us personally. And so the only thing that we need to say is this. God does not make you sin. The Bible is clear. God does not make you sin. On the contrary, he desires your righteousness. James 1, 13 through 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Got it? Let no one say when I am being tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Don't blame God. And then he says who to blame, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Does God make you sin? No, he does not. You make you sin. So clearly we are responsible for our actions, for our decisions, for our thoughts. Even accountable for the temptations that we lead ourselves into. And this is including, obviously, those of us who are saved. Over and over and over again, the writers of the New Testament plead with believers to not only accept the grace of God, but to live up to it. 1 Peter 1, 14-19 As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, remember he is speaking to Christians, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here, Peter is talking to Christians. He is asking them to put away their old sinful selves to choose holiness, to choose right living. And he says that God judges impartially according to each one's deeds. There's no confusion here. God will hold you personally responsible for all of your actions. Now we know that as believers, our salvation is guaranteed. We know that. But still, believers will be held accountable. Do you want to enter glory with your hair singed? Or do you want to enter glory welcomed as a good and faithful servant. You will be held accountable to your actions. So now we come to our difficulty today. Clearly God is sovereign. He has complete control. And clearly we are responsible for our own actions and our own choices. Both are true. This is what is called an antinomy. The definition of an antinomy is a contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. And in our case, they're necessary. Contradiction between conclusions which are necessary in and of themselves. Uh, Packer has this great 
book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. You should read it. A lot of Emmaus students are going to end up reading this book. Uh, it gives a great example of an antinomy in physics. Uh, he talks about light, how in physics, light is both proven to be a wave and proven to be a particle. But there is no good reason why both of these things should be true at once. Now, Packer uses this as an example of, of an antinomy today, but actually, and maybe he didn't realize this, or maybe he did and didn't agree with the, with the theory, there is a theory in existence, it's called the quantum field theory, that attempts to explain this, and it seems like it does a pretty good job. Now, that in no way changes my comparison, because actually it helps my comparison. The point of an antinomy is not that there is no answer for why these two things appear to contradict. The point is that there is an answer, and we don't know what it is. So in our case today, we have the antinomy of God's sovereignty and our free will, our responsibility. And we have no idea what the answer is. But both appear to be true. And actually, I'm going to add a word to our definition of an antinomy. It is an appearance of contradiction, not a contradiction, an appearance of contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. Both of these things are required in the Bible. We are told both exist, but both appear to contradict with each other. <clears throat> now we know that God is logical, that God is orderly, that he is consistent, that he is unchanging, that he is completely just and fair, and that for God everything makes sense, because he's God. He's not a God of chaos or confusion, so though we do not know the answer now, we can have faith that God does know the answer because he's the one who created this whole situation in the first place. Now the danger comes in when we allow the human necessity for rationalization and logic, and logic that our feeble minds can understand. We make everything have to fit into this little box. If it doesn't make sense to us, it can't possibly exist. And we let that intrude on the truths of God and his logic. Who are you, O oh man, to question God, the creator of all things? He tells you something is true. You believe it. He's God. This makes me think of Job. Job 38, 1 through 13. And we're almost through. <clears throat> then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. And for those of you who don't know, that's like putting on your armor. That's <clears throat> Guys, come talk to me. Gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, you instruct me. This is God speaking. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made, I made, God, a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt in doors. And I said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud wave stop. Have you ever in your life, commanded the morning 
and cause the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out. Every sunrise, God tells it to do it. Every single movement of the earth, God is the one who is making it happen. We exist through the sheer will of God's mind right now. We are in existence because God is currently progressively willing it so. So, when our nice little human minds start thinking, well, this doesn't make sense. God must not exist or he must be stupid or something. How dare us? God said so, so deal with it. Now, the hope here is that these things are going to make sense someday. And our glorification, these things start to make sense. Right now they don't. That's okay. We don't need them to make sense. The secret things belong to God. So in closing, we've talked a lot today about some lofty issues that cause a lot of strife, that cause a lot of arguing. Is God sovereign over all things? Yes. Do we have choice and responsibility for our actions? Yes. Both must be accepted as true because God says so in his scripture. The most important thing to take away from all of this is that thinking, reasoning, logic can be very, very good. God gave you a mind. Use it. But only when they do not go against God. We have to accept God at his word. Because I believe that Christianity and all that God has told us in Scripture is completely logical, completely reasonable, and completely true. But at its base, it is still faith in God. And that requires us to trust God. Now remember, we are His creation. He created the very fabric of logic and the capability to think. We have to trust that He knows better than we do. Because honestly, take a moment. If everything was up to us, how bad would things be? Consider how quickly we can make a mess of things. Instead, leave today considering how much hope and peace we can have, the fact that God's in control of all this stuff, even my personal life. God has made you a promise. If you have accepted His Son as your Savior, He's making you a promise, actively, progressively, that He will work all things out together for your good. Let's pray. Lord, Father in Heaven, I just thank You for Your truth. Uh, Lord, I confess that... Uh, I can be a doubter and I can be faithless. But Father, I pray that you would move us, change our hearts, uh, conform us to you. Uh, thank you for your word, Lord. Uh, I'm sorry if I've gotten in the way in any way today and I just pray that uh, you would be moving, uh, that it would be all about you. I pray this in your name. Amen.